Church, we are going to be talking about a topic this morning that all of us know a lot about because there's nobody in this room that doesn't have to deal with conflict, right? Conflict is one of those things I would say most of us have to deal with on a, on a daily basis. And so we're going to be looking in 2 Samuel chapter 10. Again, it's not a throwaway chapter. It's listing some of the battles and some of the conflict that David is going through. A lot about chapter 10 is setting up what we're going to see in the story with David and Bathsheba. But I don't want you to see it just as one of those chapters that, again, he, he fights some enemies and the battles are done and there's nothing to glean from it. Every page in the Scripture has so much to teach us and to show us. And this text, again, is absolutely no different. We know what it is to be insulted, don't we? How many of you have ever been insulted in your life? You know, it's when a church member walks up to a pastor and says, you know, your sermon today reminded me of the mercies of God, Aaron. They just endure forever. Okay, that's an insult, right? I mean, that's kind of mean-spirited, really. Uh, Winston Churchill, uh, I always loved because he always knew how to deal with uh, insult. Whenever you hear him or see him uh, being insulted, he always had the witty comeback. Uh, Lady Astor once said to him, Winston, if you were my husband, I would flavor your coffee with poison. I mean, that's an insult, right? But Churchill came back and said, Madam, if I were your husband, I'd drink it. We're going to see a story today where not only is King David insulted, but we're going to see where there is just injury added to insult. We're going to see something today, and it's really kind of, it's a comical story if it wasn't so serious, some of the stuff that went on and some of the stuff that happened. You can't make up the stuff in Scripture. I mean, sometimes it reads uh, just in ways that you're like, I cannot believe this is in the Bible, this story. And so today, let's get into this look at 2 Samuel chapter 10. I'm going to read it to you. It says in verse 1, it says, Now it happened afterwards that the king of the Ammonites died. And Hanun, his son, became the king in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent some of his servants to console him concerning his father. But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, do you think that David is honoring your father because he has sent consolers to you? Has David not sent his servants to you in order to search the city, to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and he shaved off half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle as far as their hips and sent them away. When they told it to David, he sent to meet him. For the men were greatly humiliated. And the king said, stay in Jericho until your beards grow and then return. Now when the sons of Ammon saw that they had become odious to David, to the sons of, uh, the sons of Ammon sent and they hired the Arameans of Beth Rehob, the Arameans of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob with 12,000 men. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all of the army of the mighty men. The sons of Ammon cut out and, or came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city, while the Arameans of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah, they were by themselves in the field. Now when Joab saw that the battle was set against him in front and in the rear, he selected from all the choice men of Israel, and he arrayed them against the Arameans. 
But the remainder of the people he placed in the hand of Abishai, the brother, or his brother, and he arrayed them against the sons of Ammon. And he said, If the Arameans are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come to help you. Be strong and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is right in his sight. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Arameans, and they fled before him. And when the sons of Ammon saw that the the Arameans fled, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. And Joab returned from fighting against the sons of Ammon and came to Jerusalem. And when the Arameans saw that they they were defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadezer sent and brought out the Arameans who were beyond the river, and they came to Halam, and Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, led them. Now when it was told David, he gathered all of Israel together, and they crossed the Jordan and came to Halam, and the Arameans arrayed, arrayed themselves to meet David and fought against him. The Arameans fled before Israel. David killed 700 charioteers of the Arameans, 40,000 horsemen, and struck down Shabak, the commander of their army, and he died there. And when all the kings and servants of Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel, and they served them. And so the Arameans fill, or feared, uh, I'm sorry, so the Arameans feared to help the sons of Ammon anymore. One of the things that first stood out to me when I read this story, there are really three principles that I want to talk about with you this morning. And number one, conflict it often catches us by surprise. Most of us don't wake up in the middle of the morning and we just decide that, you know what, we want conflict today. I would say you're a little bit of a weirdo if you are out in life looking for conflict. Now, some of us, we deal with conflict differently, right? There are some of us that when confrontation comes or conflict comes, there are some that, that you know, we hesitate to go towards it at all. There are others of us that while we don't like conflict, we're not necessarily afraid of conflict and we may approach it and we may be one of those people that are more prone to go out and approach the issues that are facing us in life, conflicts that come out of relationships with people. But I would say on the average day, nobody is out there looking for conflict. And even though we know that it's going to come, it often catches us by surprise. You've heard the statement and the saying that no good deed goes unpunished, right? Most of us know what it's like to extend grace to someone, especially when we see conflict coming, when we know that it's about to to be in our lives. David faced a situation where he had a, a neighboring king. He died. Now, we don't know. The Bible actually doesn't tell us the king who died, what he did for David that that kind of endeared David to him. In fact, it's kind of shocking that he wants to reach out this way to the people of Ammon simply because it was the people of Ammon, the king of Ammon, that when Saul was the king, if you remember, there was a battle and and the Ammonites came and they stood against Jabesh Gilead. And if you remember, they had conquered them pretty much and they looked at these people of Israel and they pretty much said to them, you know what, you have a choice. Either we are going to kill you or we're going to gouge your eyes out and almost were like to these people, you can pick your punishment. You have two days to decide. Well, I don't know. I mean, that would be a horrible two days, wouldn't it? Waiting to decide, all right, do I want to just die or do I just want to gouge my eyes out? It's kind of a crazy thing that they offered to them. But it was Saul that came along, and if you remember, he rescued the people of Jabesh Gilead, and he saved them from this consequence or this punishment or, or this, this basically this, this uh, 
the savage thing that was about to happen to them. And these men of Jabesh-Gilead, remember, they were the ones when Saul died and they hung his body up and his son's bodies. It was the men of Jabesh-Gilead that went and got him down from that dishonor and honored the king. That, it was because of that instance. So it's kind of odd when we get to this point that we realize that David wants to honor these people. Tradition says that it was the Ammonites that possibly were the ones that helped David's family. Tradition says that one of David's brothers who survived what they believe was uh, the death, if you remember the Moabites, he sent his family to the Moabites when Saul was hunting him, and it was believed that his parents died at the hands of the Moabites, that one of his brothers found refuge possibly with the Ammonites. And many scholars believe that might be because of that tradition within uh, the Jewish customs that, that somehow that is probably the reason that he, he favored these people. We really don't know. Scripture really doesn't tell us exactly what happened, but that's where we find ourselves is he wants to bless the son of this king, who died, for whatever reason it was. When we get to this point in Scripture, David does a very good deed. Most kings in this day, they were always looking to enlarge their territory. Most kings in this day were only concerned for their people and didn't have a concern really for the nations that were around them. Most kings in this day would have seen this king dying as an opportunity to overthrow, an opportunity to conquer, and David doesn't want to do any of that. What David decides is, I want to show compassion to these people. In fact, he goes a step further, and what he says, he uses the word we've been talking about, hesed. If you remember in the last chapter, it was to Mephibosheth that he wanted to show God's loving kindness, his mercy, his grace. And now, I mean, we can understand this is Mephibosheth. This is a Jew. This is the son or or would have been the grandson of King Saul, the son of Jonathan, to whom he made a covenant. It makes perfect sense for David to want to show that kind of commitment to Mephibosheth. But you turn the page and now David is showing the same kind of love, the same kind of compassion, the same kind of commitment to a completely pagan king. Again, remember when we said that David has the heart of who? He's got the heart of God. Thankfully, we find that David was not a king who was just out to make war. That he wasn't just out to build his own name in his own kingdom. He knew that there were battles that must be fought, and he also knew that it wasn't his job to go out and just come up with battles to fight. And so he did something that was really amazing. He sent an envoy. Really what they would be is the equivalent of our ambassadors today to go and to minister to this family, to send condolences to this family, to comfort this family in their time of grief. But David, he found out something that sometimes happens to all of us, and we've got to figure out how to deal with it. People can reject our grace, can't they? And let me go ahead and make it clear that we often reject God's grace. Before we we say that we can't understand, how could someone be so cruel? How could someone be so unwilling to, to respond to love and to grace? Listen, that was our story before we knew Christ, right? I mean, that's the wickedness of the hearts of men. And here is David. He wasn't content to just feel kindness toward this young man whose father died and now he has found himself being king. David understands that, doesn't he? I mean, David knows what it's like to be thrust into the limelight that suddenly, remember, one day he was out shepherding sheep and all of a sudden a prophet comes and says, you're going to be king. You think he understood where this new king was? 
And see, he had what God has, and he has the heart of God where he has compassion because compassion, the difference between compassion and kindness, kindness is just the feeling that you have in one way where, where, where you, know, you recognize that someone has a need. Compassion takes it that step further to where you were determined not just to recognize the need, to feel the need, but you were intent to meet the need. It's Jesus looking over the children of Israel. It says that he was weeping as he looked over Jerusalem. And what did he say? He said he had compassion on them. He didn't turn around away from Jerusalem. In that moment when he had compassion, what the people needed was a Savior, and guess what he did? In his compassion, he walked into the place that he knew would be his death. David offers this kindness towards Hanun. He did something to bring comfort to this grieving man, but the problem is the grace was rejected. Now we see why it was rejected. This is another sub-lesson that's really in here. Is that this young man had around himself people that weren't good counselors. Folks, your counselors, the people that you go to for guidance, the people that you go to for wisdom, the people that you go to for advice. Let me tell you something. You better make sure that they are godly men and women who spend time in prayer because most of the trouble that we get in most times, it's because we take bad advice. And here is this king who has received this delegation and everybody around him, you know what they're saying? You know what? I don't believe David's motives. You say, why would they not believe David's motive? Sometimes we put on other people what we ourselves would do. Have you ever noticed that? Our faults become everybody else's faults. Our inconsistencies become everybody else's inconsistencies. And these men probably could not imagine a scenario where a king like David would do anything other than try to come in and take the kingdom in the midst of this transfer of power. And they can't see that David was genuine in what he was doing. They advised the king that you know what, these are spies and we need to send them away. It would have been one thing to send them away. But you see, what was going on was they rejected grace. They questioned the motives of King David. The immaturity and the ignorance of these counselors triumphed over wisdom and common sense. They likely judged David on the basis of what they would have done. And rather than sending away these folks conflict suddenly arose because they could have just sent the delegation away. But they added insult to injury. They did something that really was unconscionable back in that day. These were ambassadors. I want you to remember this wasn't two fraternities or something. We could see that happening in frat houses, right? I mean, what they did, let me go ahead and give you the, the heads up. You don't realize what happened. They basically took these men and they had grown these long beards. It'd be like me holding John Wilson down on a Sunday and shaving half his beard off. He ain't going to be happy, right? Back then it was worse because the beard was a sign of honor. People with clean shaven faces back in that day usually were slaves, not freedmen. And literally, it was, it was honor to have these beards. Just look over the television today and you will see across the Middle East all these beards that are being worn. And to shave a beard like that would have been a great disgrace to those men. And that wasn't all that they did. Literally, they took the robes, and I don't know how else to say it, they cut the butt out of the robes. So that when these men had to travel all the way back to Jerusalem, they're traveling and, and 
they're just showing themselves all the way. You can imagine the indignity. I mean, could you imagine that happening to one of our U.S. ambassadors? I mean, again, if it was somebody pledging for a frat, we might laugh and go, huh, that was a good one. But in that scenario, guess what? It was deadly serious. And to have insulted those men, remember, these men are what? They are ambassadors. And who do ambassadors speak for? They speak for the king. And what they did was as much against David as it was against those men. In essence, you know what it really was? It was a declaration of war. And a battle was about to ensue. What I love about David was even David, uh, what he could have done was he could have brought these men all the way back in to Jerusalem. He actually heard what happened and he went to meet those men because he knew those men were ashamed. He knew those men were defeated. He knew those men were embarrassed. He knew those men were humiliated. And he had the wisdom not to parade those men around. What he could have done was he could have paraded those men around as political tools. He could have tried to whip up everybody into a frenzy using those men. But wisely, you know what he did for these men? He cared for them. He loved them. He told them, listen, you need to stay outside of Jerusalem. Give time for your beards to grow back. Obviously, he made sure that they were clothed again. That was a part of the humiliation that they could quick fix, fix, quick, sorry, whew, fix quickly. But the reality... <laughs> I can't look at Randy Keats ever because he, he loves to laugh at me when I do that. So I can't look at Randy. I got to look over here. Now I don't even know what I was saying. Anyways, he was going to fix the beards, uh, but, but you know, he, he couldn't fix uh, that issue quickly. So he says to them, you know what, stay until those things uh, have fixed themselves before you have to come back and be showing yourselves in an undignified, uh, less than honorable way. And what we see in the story is that because often of other people in our lives, it doesn't matter what our intention is, Sometimes, even with the best of intention, even when we're extending grace, even when we are trying to be the hands and feet of Jesus, do you recognize that sometimes conflict is kind of out of our hands? That sometimes the reality of conflict is that sometimes conflict is unavoidable. It catches us by surprise. Secondly, conflict can be unavoidable. You see, realizing this foolish blunder didn't take long, I think, for the king to realize that, you know what, we made a mistake. I think he probably realized pretty quickly after he sent those men off that, you know what, David is not someone to mess with, and here we are. What if he really sent these men with good intentions? What if these men were not spies? Somewhere along the way, I think he realized that, you know what, we've probably made a grave mistake. We don't know how much time passed, but it might be that they were beginning to hear the whispers and the rumors of how the kingdom of Israel took the dishonor that they gave to those ambassadors. And those men, they begin to really panic. You have no idea what happens here. I mean, literally, they're so concerned, they go and hire we learn from uh, Chronicles chapter 19 that they went and they hired 33,000 men to come fight on their behalf at the cost of a thousand talents of silver. That is the modern day equivalent of $53 million. These men were scared. These men probably knew that they had messed up. 
I'm sure word had gotten back to them that that was not the intention. How dare they embarrass these ambassadors and do what they did to these men. And now they are in crisis mode themselves because they know that a conflict most likely is coming. Rather than repenting. That's what's so shocking about this story. Is that like anyone else in life, they could have repented. They could have sent their own envoy back and said, listen, what we did was shameful and what we did was wrong and we misread and misunderstood your intentions. Please forgive us. And I really truly believe that David was a man of honor that most likely would have said, you know what? It can be forgiven. There are numerous times in his life he will show great grace towards people who have dishonored him. But rather than seeking forgiveness and seeking a way out of this mess, rather than repentance, they decide that they're going to keep fighting. 33,000 foreign soldiers hired to help repel this anticipated Israeli attack. I want to say this when it comes to conflict. And I think this is what David exemplified for us. Be sure you're not the reason for conflict. A lot of the conflict in your life, you will probably want to blame on someone else, right? How many times do we find ourselves not in David's position, but in the Ammonite's position? Do you know how many of us walk around so suspecting other people, so unable to receive grace? Do you realize that in marriages, there are many marriages in this room that the greatest thing that is hindering them from being repaired, from repentance coming, is that we can't quit questioning each other's motives. I literally sit in the office sometimes with people that you know what I know is true? That even if the person was genuine, the other person, the spouse, the child, that things have gotten so bad over the years that even if a real attempt at reconciliation was made, sometimes the other people, they're not ready to receive grace. They're not ready to offer forgiveness. They're not ready to make right what has been wrong, and they will keep fighting even after grace has been extended. And see, we got to be sure what side of that equation that we are on. Remember that in Christ, we've been called to be peacemakers, haven't we? I mean, listen, if there's a ministry that we all share, doesn't the Word of God say that we have the ministry of reconciliation? That not only are we reconciled to God, but our intention should be that in every way we find a way to be right with God so that we can love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he turns around and says, the second greatest thing that you need to be doing is not just loving me, but loving other people. And he calls us to not just be right with God ourselves, but to help others be right with God so that we can all be right with each other. The salvation that we have received isn't just about our relationship with God. It transforms every other relationship that is in our life. And I fear that more times than not, we have found ourselves on the wrong side of a conflict. We can't let go. We refuse to trust. feels like losing. Our pride won't let us. We'll seem weak. Do you know what it's like to be held back by those thoughts? 
I do. How many times, literally, do we continue to fight as families or coworkers or within churches, and literally, we know what's right and we know what's wrong, but simply that idea that if I give in in this moment, if I stop, if, if I seek you know, reconciliation, then I'm the weak one. They should have to come ask for it. They should have to seek it. I'm not going to lower myself. Well, listen, that is the call of a Christian. Humble yourself. And see, we got to be sure that we are on the right side of these conflicts because many, many times we realize that we're the reason for the conflict. Be sure that you aren't the reason for the conflict. Be sure that if you're in conflict, that number one, you haven't caused the conflict, but secondly, know that you're fighting for the right reasons. What I love about Christ is that everywhere that you see Him in Scripture, in some kind of a conflict, you realize that He wasn't fighting for Himself. In the sense of, He wasn't worried about His own needs, His own wants, His own desires. What drove Him was that He loved people and He loved God. Which is what's supposed to what drive us, correct? One of the ways that you will realize whether or not you're in a conflict for the right reason or whether you're on the wrong reason Figure out the reason why you're in the conflict in the first place. What I love about David's men and what I love about David is he's, this wasn't about them. You know what they said? Listen, these men are in battle array. They are about to come against us, and we have a reason to fight. We are going to fight for our people, and we are going to fight for the cities of God. Isn't that what he said? He told the men, be strong, Joab. Abishai, be courageous. Those are choices that we have to make because sometimes conflict will come to us and we have to learn to stand on truth. We have to learn to stand on what's right. And sometimes conflict comes and battles ensue that we have to fight. We need to fight for the sake of truth. It's like Jesus when he was in the temple. Some people think it's unbecoming of Jesus when he's in there and he's fashioning whips and he's flipping tables. But when you get down to the heart of why Jesus was in the midst of that conflict, you know what it was? It wasn't so much that his ego was bruised or his pride was bruised because of the way they were using the temple. You know what his greatest concern was? He was concerned because where they were selling things to make money off the people coming to worship, they had taken up the whole court of the Gentiles and God's temple wasn't just for the Jews, it was for the world so that they could come and they could pray and they could get to know this God who created them, that salvation was possible through this God of Israel. But you know what? There wasn't a Gentile that could find their way into the court because they had decided that that was the place they were going to make money and they weren't concerned for the souls, but Jesus was. And it drove him to fight. It drove him to a conflict. But it wasn't about himself. As much as it was about everyone around him. Do you know the reason why we fight? Folks, I want you to understand, we don't live in an age where it's an eye for an eye. Not as believers. Now, that's what the world says. And that's the way many of us might choose to still try to live. And we'll try to justify that through the Old Testament Scriptures. But I want to remind you that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus turned that whole idea up on His head. He said, you've heard it said that an eye for an eye, right? 
He said, but I'm telling you that if you were to give something to someone and they didn't give it back, then you know what? Let them have it. If someone strikes you on the cheek, what does he say to do? He says to turn it. Someone asks you to walk a mile, walk two. You see, Jesus turned our thinking upside down because he said most of the reasons why you're fighting and you're in conflict is because you're so focused on yourself and not the other person. An eye for an eye leaves everybody blind, right? Folks, when we live as Jesus asks us to live, it's not cowardly, it's not fanatical, it's biblical. Folks, doing this and living this way isn't natural, it's supernatural. I want to say to you today, and I want you to hear this clearly, that it is the strong man who can love others and suffer hurt on their behalf. Did you hear what I said? It is the strong man who can love others and suffer on their behalf. You say, that's foolishness. Well, then what do you do with Jesus? God incarnate, wrapped in flesh. When he tells you to love your enemies, he is going to display it for you on a rugged cross. Never forget it that it was the Lord's kindness that drew you to repentance. Never forget that if you want to see an enemy change, the greatest way to see it changed is to love them. But it stands against our culture. It stands against the way many of us were raised. We're not merely to cease hatred and to avoid hatred. Jesus took it a step further and He said you can't even hide in cold neutrality. We have to love even where hatred is inevitable. The only way to overcome our enemy is by loving them. Aren't you glad that's the way that Jesus found us? You say, well, you know what? I don't feel it. Well, good. Because love isn't a feeling. Love is a choice. And when God asks you to love your enemy, just as much as He says love your brother and love your neighbor, even when He says love your enemy, He's keying you in on a fact that you know what? You actually have a choice. Choose wisely. Choose love. Be willing to show mercy when presented the opportunity. We've got to be sure we're not the reason for conflict. We've got to be sure that we're fighting for the right reason. But we also have to be willing to show mercy when presented the opportunity. I find it very interesting that David does for these men what God will do for us over and over is that he seeks to bring about restoration. He seeks to stop the battle when... He could keep fighting. David and these men, if you look at the story and the way it went, 
says that Joab and Abishai, they, they got in the midst of the battle and they're sitting there and they're, they're going because they're in battle array coming against Israel. And so they go to meet them in battle. And literally it says that they realize that in the front and the back that they've been surrounded. And so they divide forces. And basically as forces are divided, we'll get into the rest of a little bit of what was said. But what eventually ends up happening is that, that when they see the strength of, of David's army, and, and when I say that, I don't mean that there was a lot of chariots, because there probably wasn't. That there may have been more men, because there probably wasn't. What we find is that we are engaging the right conflicts and the right battles at the right time for the right reasons. You realize that God is our defense, right? And without even really having to fight much of a battle, it says that as soon as the battle engaged, it says that the enemy, even though they had, because think about this, they had the army of Israel surrounded, these mighty men of God, they were surrounded to the point they were having to figure out how to divide and conquer on both ends of, the, of this battle. And it says that first the Syrians turn tail and run. And it says that when the Ammonites saw what was going on and the army that they had hired it, a thousand talents of silver was now turning tail and running. Guess what? Now they ran back into the city and got behind their walls. And it's amazing to me because guess what the armies of Israel did? They let them. It's one of the first times in Scripture that we see a king use that kind of wisdom. One of the most dangerous things in conflict resolution is, I mean, when you think about it, sometimes we want to win so bad, it's like, I won't just win, I will destroy you. You ever been there? You ever seen that in a relationship? David and his armies let them retreat. They showed mercy when they were presented the opportunity. What's crazy is you say, well, Aaron, if we show mercy, that just means they'll do it again. Yeah, that's a very strong possibility. That's exactly what you do to God. Aren't you glad he keeps extending mercy? How many times have you needed grace in your life? I can assure you it wasn't just the day he saved you. I guarantee you, you need it more today than you did then. And God gives us this beautiful picture. And while conflict many times comes to us, it matters how and why we are in the conflict. And lastly, I want you to see that conflict is an opportunity to display trust. For the children of Israel, what mattered the most was the statement in verse 12. Because Joab and Abishai, they're looking at their warriors and they're basically saying to them, listen, you need to be courageous. We've got to place our trust in the Lord's will. When you notice it says, be strong, let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. And listen to what they said. And may the Lord do what is what? What is good in His sight. 
You see, most of us, here's the thing, we never know the outcome of conflict, do we? The question is, can we trust God that if I do what is right and good, I do what is in His will, I do what only I can do. I, I can't change the other person. I can't change the way they think. I can't change the way they question my motives. I can't change the way they reject my grace. I can't change how they respond, but I can do what is right and what is good. Most of us never get to that point in the conflicts that we have in our daily lives. We're so caught up in what other people are doing that we're not asking ourselves, what should I be doing? And I'm going to do what God tells me to do. I'm going to do what I know is right. And then, guess what? I'm going to leave the timetable. I'm going to leave the results up to God. And at the end of the day, all that matters is I'm going to be found faithful to have done what He's asked me to do. And when I can't do anything else, then I'm going to leave it up to Him to do what only He can do. Folks, that is a great posture for any believer to display trust in God with the things that you cannot control. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, most things in your life you can't control. So you better figure this part out. Folks, the conflicts and the issues in our life, they're nothing more than an opportunity for us to grow and display the trust that we have in God. And most of it, listen, don't sit back and just say, God changed them. God changed them. God changed them. These conflicts are meant for us to look at ourselves and be sure that we are living and responding in the way that God would have us live and respond, that we act like Jesus in the midst of conflicts. And the reason these things happen to us, they mold us and they shape us. So we got to stop saying, you know what? And I don't, I'm not saying don't pray for the other person, but I'm saying if you think it's all about them and has nothing to do with you, you're missing the point. And if you think you have nothing to do with it, you're probably missing the point. Rarely do I come up upon a counseling issue that it's not 80-20, 60-40. usually is the max. And the difference it makes when one person says, you know what, I'm going to do what God has asked me to do. I promised I would love you and cherish you. I promised I would honor you. Good times, bad times, riches, poorness, right? Health, sickness. I made a covenant. I made a commitment. So you know what? I'm going to be faithful to my end of the covenant regardless of what you do. See, that's when God starts to repair marriages. Most of us don't realize if we would live our life trying to outlove each other, oh my goodness. But that's not how we operate. Most of the time, we try to outright each other. Who's right? Who's wrong? We make our life a battle. We live thinking that everybody lives for us and not that we live for them. Folks, all these things matter and all these things make a difference. And literally, when we get into these places of conflict, we've got to get back to the place in our lives that we realize that our goal in the midst of these trials is to place our trust in the Lord's will. Just like we said about love, courage and strength, they're a matter of choice. You say, well, how can that be? Well, very simple. Christ has made strength available to us. We have His Holy Spirit, don't we? 
What greater power is there in the world than the power that can raise dead back to life? The power that raised Jesus from the dead. The power that brings salvation. The power that literally says that when you have the Word of God in this power, the Spirit of God, literally you have all that you need for life and godliness. There is not a person in this room who is truly a believer in Jesus Christ that has to sit back and say, I can't live boldly. I can't live courageously. I can't live with strength. Those things are choices because we have promises. We can be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, as the Scripture says. You see, Joab wisely prepared for the battle to the best of his ability. Joab was willing to work hard for this victory. In fact, what I love about Joab and Abishai, never do they say that they fear that they're going to lose this battle. You don't even hear that discussion in here. They're trusting God. They know that, God, this is your will. God, this is what you will do. It doesn't matter what we do. This is what you will do. This is what you have promised. We're going to just be obedient to you. And then there's no talk of defeat. Because he prepared and he was willing to fight from victory. And he knew that ultimately the outcome was in God's hand. And when they placed their trust in the Lord, look what happened. The mercenary army fled before the mighty men of God because God was with them. And he promised blessings upon an obedient Israel. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 7, you'll find the very promise that we see lived out right here that he said to the children of Israel that in that day when you obey me and you submit yourselves to me, he says you will go out into battle and guess what he says will happen? Your enemy will scatter. When we place our trust in God's will, Folks, I want you to look around you and then I want you to place your trust in God's people too. I love what it says here. He wasn't worried about defeat. What he said was, hey, listen, we're going to go out here and do battle and I don't know which side of this thing is stronger, the Syrians who have got 30,000 men over here who are mercenaries working for money or these Ammonites who are over here and, you know, I would think they probably thought the Ammonites might be a little weaker. They were outside their city. They obviously needed help. And he looks at Abishai and says, look, I'm going to go over and fight these guys. And if I start to get a little behind here and I start to look like what's losing, he says, I need you to come. Isn't it good to know that God has given us, brothers, people to fight the battle with us that we can say, you know, what? And, and you say, what's the, the beauty of a church? The beauty of a church is not only that you receive that, but you also get to give that. That we stand arm in arm and we do battle Together, that the conflicts that you and I are going through in our marriages, do you realize that you have brothers around you that you can say, listen, when I'm struggling, I need you to come help me. And when you start to struggle, you can count on me to be there to help you. That's what a church is supposed to be. We don't just meet to have connect groups. We don't just meet to sit in here and, and sing some songs and give some money and, and get up and go about our day. No, we are here so that we can go out there and we can advance the kingdom of God. And folks, when you go to advance the kingdom of God, battles are coming. When you seek to live your life in a godly way, battles are coming. When you seek to make your marriage honor God, battles are coming. They are inevitable. But God is with you and he hasn't left you alone. Do you take the opportunity 
to be part of God's people in a way that, you know what, when you are in the midst of battle, you've got men and you've got women standing on each side of you. Actually, one of the things I love in this story is this is where you begin to hear David's men referred to as mighty men. That wasn't where he found them. You remember what they were when he found them? It says that they were distressed. Remember that story? They were indebted. These people were discontent. But David has led them well to follow the Lord and to serve their God. And these men that were once distressed, these men that were once, once broken, these men that were once defeated, guess what? God has raised up an army of mighty men. And that leads us to the last statement. As we're talking about, it's an opportunity to display trust. I don't know how else to say it. Are you a person that others can trust? I feel like Abishai and, and Joab, you know, they knew they could count on each other. They were brothers. They had each other's back, right? I can't tell you how important it is in the life of a church, in the life of believers, in the life of a family. That I know I can count on you and you know you can count on me. You say, well, duh, that's how churches operate. That is not how churches operate. Do we know about each other that you know what? Those people love me and they will always act in my best interest. They won't stab me in the back. They won't talk about me behind my back. They won't laugh at me when I fail. They'll walk with me. They'll call me. They'll pray for me. And not just pray for me, they will actually find me and pray with me. They will cry with me. They will laugh with me. They will share in my celebrations. They will share in my defeats. Are you the type person that when it comes down to these issues in life that we all face, that people look at you and they know that's a brother, that's a sister in Christ. And beyond a shadow of a doubt, they're with me.